So I started life here uh, when doing my DPhil as a historical geographer. That's still my first love, but today I'm be focusing more on the research, uh, the more sort of recent research or recent research I've been involved in in the last uh, couple of decades, probably, uh, so <laughs> on uh, migration issues in, in, in Asia. So, um, so for this talk, I've tried to put together um, three or four different strands of uh, different projects I've been working on, all around the idea of uh, care chain migration. And uh, for, for this talk, this is entitled Global Householding Care Migration and Gender Politics in Asia, uh, with a greater focus on Southeast Asia as opposed to the whole of Asia. So I hope to focus on um, essentially five sections. The first two is basically just to, to set the scene uh, for what I really want to talk about, which is uh, three and four, um, looking at global householding in the northern end of the care chain as well as then turning to the other end, the southern end of the care chain, and to look at sort of uh, issues around care uh, when mothers become migrant breadwinners. So, uh, so let me start by, uh, in a sense, maybe I gather that mm, the, the audience here, not everyone will be familiar with Asia, or I presume they're Africanist and and Latin American specialists as well. So, so let me then start with the most basic, which is to, in a sense, say that uh, in Asia, of course, this is a vast continent that sort of experienced very dramatic economic growth uh, and the widening of uh, differences among countries in terms of standard of living as well as um, the uh, supply and demand of labor means that uh, forces that generate uh, migration has been set up. So there's been a rapid rise in migration, uh, not only from the region, but also within the region. So this intra-Asian migration. So this is the usual UN chart showing that in, in Asia, uh, there are sort of 110 million people um, estimated who originate from Asia, uh, who are migrants around the world. But uh, what's also, in a sense, interesting is that 80 million international migrants also live in Asia. So, in other words, Asia produces the largest share of international migrants on the move, and is also a place of surgeon for the largest share of migrants. So, and um, you could say many things about this chart, but I just wanted to point to one issue, which is the gender component. Uh, and if you look at this other UN chart, you see that in Asia, women comprise more than half uh, of the total number of international migrants. So um, of the 80 million, 55% uh, are women. So in that sense, that sets the scene for what we'll talk about in terms of the gender politics of the region uh, in relation to, to migration. So the other sort of uh, demographic trend to um, introduce uh, very briefly is to do with the rapid fertility decline in Asia, uh, given the rise in cost of living, as well particularly in terms of raising children in the developed economies in Asia, fertility rates have plummeted uh, to levels well below replacement in many of the more developed countries, including China, Japan, Singapore, South Korea, and Thailand. So here we see ultra low fertility. Uh, in Singapore, for example, it's below 1.2 now. So we are very far off from uh, replacement rate. So this has many consequences, of which one is the rapid 
aging uh, with very high uh, elderly dependency ratios in the more developed, more affluent societies in Asia as life expectancies rise and family units become smaller. So, um, and this then leads to what one might call an elder care kind of predicament in, in Asia, uh, which is in a sense uh, in need of solutions. And um, one more thing to add before we talk about uh, migration in, in more specifically, um, and partly because of this uh, elder care predicament, um, women's uh, sort of work in the home has become increasingly heavy um, and in, in many parts of Asia, including uh, societies like Singapore and Hong Kong and Taiwan and so forth, women are participating in the workforce in much larger numbers now, uh, given rising educational levels. And so, um, and at the same time, the gender division of household labor hasn't changed very much, so that means that women basically have to shoulder the triple burden of not just uh, child raising and uh, career building, but uh, increasingly with the elder care predicament, uh, elder care uh, sort as well. So uh, what stands out most for me is that when I go and look at the supermarket shelves, uh, in, the, in the good old days it's basically baby diapers, but uh, increasingly the, sh the baby diapers are being sort of <laughs> moved on by elder care diapers, uh, replacing the baby diapers, because fertility rate is very low, and the population is aged. So uh, this is, in a sense, just to show that uh, for women, their work uh, now encompasses not just uh, work and careers, but also child raising, as well as looking after elderly parents. Uh, and this kind of work is made more challenging, because the household division of labor, as I said, uh, hasn't changed very much. It's still very rigidly drawn. And uh, with the men abdicating their, their work in the household, there is what we might call a looming crisis of care in many Asian societies. So how do we then deal with this care deficit in uh, many of these societies? Um, before we go into that, let me now say a little bit about uh, migration research. Uh, and to cut a long story short, traditional migration research, I think done largely from the West, has often seen migration as more or less a, a, a permanent move, uh, a, a permanent form of movement and therefore that raises issues to do with settlement, adaptation and assimilation in whole societies. These are the key issues in terms of traditional scholarship. Uh, but with uh, the time-space compression, the rapid development in both uh, transport as well as communication technologies and in general the flexibilization of contemporary life and work cultures um, what we are seeing is that migration is moving now to more temporary modes of migration, particularly in Asia, which doesn't have this long tradition of uh, permanent settlement. Um, I was teaching a course with some Canadian colleagues and we were, we were co-teaching a, a, a course long distance and we had to struggle over the title because in Canada they insist that it's called migration and settlement. In Singapore it's well, not much settlement, so I wanted to call it geographies of migration, so um, yeah, and we, we had quite, quite a, in a sense, that's, that's the difference between kind of doing research in Asia on migration, um, the sort of, uh, tem the temporalities is, is completely different, here we are talking about uh, different degrees of temporariness. 
So with more people moving temporarily, uh, surgeoning in different places, with the possibility, although not the certainty, of returning to their countries of origin, um, this is the case not just with the transnational elites that are circulating from global city to global city, uh, professionals, managerial, entrepreneurial kind of workers, but we're beginning, well, not beginning, we are seeing larger numbers in terms of contract workers that are hired under temporary foreign labour schemes, moving where work can be found, usually sort of moved uh, by uh, the migration industry has a role to play as well. As well as just the daily commuting and border crossings on a daily, weekly and short term basis, all these uh, kinds of temporary movements are becoming very much um, the rationale of, of migration in, in Asia. Um, so the picture there just shows uh, the, almost the whole of Singapore's construction industry is made of migrant workers from India, Bangladesh, uh, China, Thailand and so forth and uh, they come on uh, work contracts of a year, two years and uh, they are expected to return. Right? So that's the flavour of the kinds of migration that I'm talking about. So I was very struck by uh, AirAsia's motto, now everyone can fly, because uh, that in a sense is true, because it's, it sort of signifies the fact that migration is no longer just um, something that the elites do, it is something that's now becoming accessible to a much broader spectrum of socioeconomic classes from uh, contract workers, undocumented workers, student migrants, marriage migrants, retirement and lifestyle migrants, and frequent flyers. So um, this has become, migration has become a household livelihood strategy as well as a way of expressing aspirations for much larger swathes of the population in, in Asia. Uh, and um, just one more um, point about migration before we move on to global householding. So, in that sense then, labour migration is not about permanent departure. Uh, it is part of circular migration that's uh, formed from the interactions between households that are linked by this toing and froing of people, the circuits of remittances, commodities, care and emotions. And the phrase permanent temporariness has become, I think, um, um, uh, 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 has come into currency to describe the kinds of migration regimes in Asia where whole societies treat migrant workers as disposable labour that's governed through this revolving door kind of policies uh, rather than as socio-political subjects with rights of family formation and integration. As you'll see later on when we talk about foreign domestic workers in many parts of Asia, they represent this kind of permanent temporariness uh, where they are admitted in the whole society as sort of uh, labour and for their labour, but not as socio-political subjects. So the whole discourse about migration can be quite different uh, in Asia compared to, say, in Europe. Oh, okay, so there's one more point I want to make, which is about the feminization of migration and the uh, rise of care migration. So in, in Southeast Asia, uh, as we saw just now in Asia as a whole, uh, women are already 55% of the migrants on the move. And uh, in Southeast Asia in particular, migration has taken a very feminized form, largely because the jobs out there, the jobs that you can 
uh, gets uh, um, in many parts of Asia has to do with care and domestic work. So women are now uh, the majority of migrant workers legally deployed from the Philippines and Indonesia, and they are usually employed uh, in the domestic care or entertainment sectors. Um, and um, this this is a response to the rising demand for women uh, as paid domestic workers and care workers, uh, given the intensification of the care deficit that I spoke about a while ago, where um, reproductive labor is being shifted from the household to the market. So here you see sort of Indonesian women outside a training center uh, for domestic workers in Jakarta, where um, they are being prepared uh, to be deployed to the many uh, uh, cities around in Asia, from Hong Kong to Singapore to Taiwan and so forth, as domestic workers. And here you see uh, Indonesian domestic workers arriving in Singapore, um, and um, you notice the uniform as well as their very short hairstyle. Uh, there is also a sense of, uh, I see a question there, I just wanted to say that uh, uh, basically the uniformity in which uh, labour is being produced in these uh, through this kind of migration industry. So there was a hand. Uh, just for a clarification, could you could you just clarify what you mean by entertainment sector? Oh, okay. So um, in terms of entertainment sector, uh, some countries like Japan has a specific entertainment pass. It's for women who. Um, enter Japan to perform in, say, the bars or uh, the uh, hotels and so forth. So these are entertainers, um, and it's a special pass called the entertainment pass. Yeah, it uh, used to be uh, much more popular, it's uh, gone into decline now. Uh, yeah, and um, of course there is uh, shading to sex work, but the entertainment pass is meant for sort of uh, migrant workers who perform uh, in uh, public settings, yeah. Okay. So, um, so do 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 raise questions as we go along because uh, I sometimes um, I can't bring Asia here, so it's it's very hard to describe the 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 multiplicity of uh, different pathways of migration in in uh, Asia. The the whole point. I'm not going to be focusing on the entertainment sector. I'll largely be looking at domestic and care work sector, which does absorb uh, very large numbers of uh, migrant women. Yeah. Okay. I carry on. Okay. Good. Okay. So um, I will also be talking about another kind of migration, which is marriage migration. In a while, uh, and uh, but just to introduce it here, uh, this is yet another very significant category in terms of international migration flows in the region. Uh, large numbers of female marriage migrants in general uh, from developing countries in Southeast Asia, from the Philippines, from Vietnam, from uh, Indonesia, Thailand, and so forth, uh, becoming a notable presence in uh, some of the countries where fertility rate is particularly low, like Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Singapore, and Malaysia. So um, I put up here a picture, and uh, through the talk, I'll be asking you some questions. So you can ask me questions, but I also want to ask you questions. And I just wanted to ask you, what's unusual about this marriage, uh, this, this uh, marriage picture? So there are two, <laughs> two brides and two grooms. So, and uh, what's interesting is, who's the man that stands in the middle of uh, the, the, the two groups? I mean, 
presumably the, this will be the family of the bride. Uh, this is a family member of the bride. Uh, who is this guy standing in the middle the of the matching, the commercial matching? So this is a phenomenon that you uh, see in, 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 in Asia, and I'll speak a little bit more about that uh, in the Singapore context in a while. But um, the matchmaking industry basically of uh, matching mainly uh, women um, from the developing areas, rural areas, uh, with uh, working class men uh, from the more developed parts of Asia. That's the general trend. Of course, uh, marriage migration, migration happens at all class levels, but uh, it is most prominent amongst working class men, uh, say in Singapore, Malaysia, um, Korea, Taiwan, who, can't, who don't do well in a marriage market locally. In other words, no woman, no Singaporean self-respecting woman wants to marry them. So, um, uh, uh, largely because um, they are work they are blue-collar workers, and in Singapore, educational level has risen for women, and women uh, have their own jobs and careers, and no longer need to depend on marriage as a way of uh, having a, a life. So uh, that means that the working class men find it very difficult in the uh, marriage market locally, so they look for women from the region, from the less developed parts of the region, and some of these marriages, not all, are matching, commercially matching. Okay? So I'll come to that in, in a while, because that has something to do with um, uh, the care deficit and, and, and social reproduction as well. Okay, so let me then uh, introduce the main topic that I want to talk about today, uh, which comes from this idea of global householding. So the emphasis here is on householding on, in terms of forming and sustaining a household. Uh, this is a, a concept that um, Michael Douglas, uh, spelled with two S, uh, not the actor, but uh, uh, my colleague in, in my colleague in Army basically developed. Um, to emphasize the view that uh, the formation and sustenance of households is increasingly reliant uh, on international movement of people as well as transactions amongst people across borders, across um, national borders basically. So, the, so this is quite a different way of thinking about a household. You usually think of the household as under one roof Right or um, eating out of the same pot, right? And these are the kinds of images of households that we bear in our heads. Uh, here, he's suggesting that uh, to sustain a household, to maintain a household, um, people are now becoming increasingly reliant on migration, on moving people across borders and transactions across borders. And in Asia. Uh, this concept, I think, has quite a bit of um, traction uh, as seen in the rapid increase of uh, these trends employing non-familial migrant domestic workers and that's something I'm going to talk about so I'll, I'll not say any more here. Uh, international cross-border marriages, again, uh, something that I'll talk about. I'm not going to be talking about uh, other forms of global householding like uh, raising and educating, educating children abroad or um, frequent lifestyles that uh, border cross in order to link uh, the productive work sphere with the reproductive family sphere. Again, very prominent kinds of um, 
um, issues that we find in many parts of Asia, but today I'm just going to be focusing on the first two, on um, the um, migration of women as domestic workers, as well as, as uh, cross-border marriage migrants. So let me then go on to the first kind of uh, global householding that we need to talk about, which is the outsourcing of care work within the family to non-familiar others. So <coughs> the point here is not outsourcing care work outside the family, it's outsourcing care work within the family sphere, but to a non-familiar other. And uh, this is done by, in a sense, importing Southeast Asian women from the less developed economies in the region at a low cost into the household to take on the burden of household reproductive labor. And um, so in that sense, if you use Singapore as example, uh, Singapore women then trade in their class privilege for the partial freedom, I would say partial freedom because they are not completely free from the burden of, of, of reproductive labor because um, uh, they are still expected to, in a sense, supervise the domestic work and so forth. But in a sense, uh, much of the hard labor, uh, reproductive labor, is passed on to another woman, in this case, a woman uh, from uh, a, a different nationality, uh, usually from, in Singapore, usually from Indonesia or from the Philippines. Okay? So, and uh, in Singapore, um, the way that foreign domestic workers are inserted into the household, into the nation state, reflects uh, the temporariness of the migration regime. So, first of all, um, just to give you a sense, uh, dependency on uh, female migrant labor, as I said, from Indonesia, Philippines, and increasingly also from Myanmar, uh, in order to address the growing care deficit is on increase in recent years and uh, today one in every five households employ a live-in domestic worker. I know it doesn't happen here so it's kind of difficult to imagine but uh, it's becoming a norm. Uh, so one in five means that almost all middle class households and above will have at least one uh, live-in domestic worker. Uh, who would be working in the household 24-7. Okay? Uh, so this means that out of a population of about 5.6 million, so Singapore has a population of about 5.6 now, uh, about a quarter of a million uh, foreign domestic workers from the region. So as I said, this is a migration regime that is in a sense structured to ensure transience of the worker, of the work, the, the and it's, that's why I call it a regime of uh, permanent temporariness because it's highly managed. The workers come in, the women come in on two-year work permits uh, in order to allow easy repatriation. And that's also, uh, we pay to the government for every domestic worker that you employ, you pay to the government a levy in order to regulate numbers so that the government can just adjust the levy in order to uh, calibrate the the flow of uh, domestic workers into Singapore. So just last week, this announced that the foreign worker levy is going to go up again. So these workers are admitted into the nation state as disposable labor without any residential rights. So there's no pathway to residency at all. Uh, they're expected to leave after the work permit is over. So these are two years, it can be renewed, uh, but um, it cannot be renewed forever. 
Okay, I mean, I can go into the details if you want to know, you know, there's an age limit and so forth. Um, so, and, uh, it, so other measures to circumscribe uh, family formation and to close off the possibility of singing groups in the Singapore society. They are not allowed to bring any dependents. They are prohibited by what's called the marriage restriction policy from marrying any Singaporean citizens or permanent residents, which leads to all kinds of interesting issues, because of course love doesn't always obey national borders. Uh, and they are repatriated if found to be pregnant. So, and I know someone should ask, how do you know whether they're pregnant? Uh, there are six monthly medical uh, tests that the domestic worker will have to undergo every six months. So these measures, as you can see, basically describes a, a scheme that's set up to ensure transience of the workers. So, um, who are admitted for their labour, not as sort of uh, subjects with socio-political rights. Okay, so then my next question. So, and then just to briefly turn to, uh, of course, uh, migration issues have been a major issue in Singapore recently, in the last uh, 15 years, I would say, and uh, increasingly there are migrant NGOs that have uh, uh, been formed to, in a sense, advocate for the rights of the workers. Uh, one of the most important successes recently in the last five years has been to what's called the day off campaign. So these domestic workers basically uh, are, are not uh, considered uh, under the Employment Act, so they have no sort of um, rights to day off. So NGOs got together to um, campaign for day off. It took us, I don't know, 10 years uh, before it was finally made mandatory that uh, there should be a day off every week. So, uh, but there are a whole, whole lot of issues to do with that. Anyway, the point is that um, this is one of the posters that's produced by an NGO called TWC2, which is now used to be called uh, the Working Committee 2, but it's changed its name to Transient Workers Count 2. And I, my next question is to ask you what's unusual about this particular photograph. Uh, there is somebody else in the picture that's invisible, mm -hmm. right? And who is that person? This is the domestic worker who basically uh, does all the hard labor of, of, of the hard, harder end of the childcare. So the tagline here is that maid plays an important role in the family and yet there are times when we forget she exists. Right, so this picture is too subtle. So I tried it on many people, and people could see it something explain what, what, what it's supposed to be, but it's meant to, in a sense, indicate the invisible but yet very important presence of the domestic worker in raising the child. Might help to have a shadow. Yes. <laughs> They've come up with other new posters now, so but uh, this is quite a long while ago. But uh, it was one of the first efforts by the NGO to try to like raise consciousness that a domestic worker basically contributes immensely to to um, the reproductive work of the family. Yeah. Okay. So, um, okay. Then uh, again, just to. Um, Break the monotony a little bit. I mean, I'm just going to show you a short clip, uh, which is based. Uh, this is a, a award-winning uh, film by Anthony Chen, and it's based on his own uh, story. So Anthony Chen is well, our first Singaporean uh, film director to win 
the, the Cannes Golden Camera Award for this film. So we are proud of it, uh, but not quite proud of the content actually because it does show a, a slice of simple life. It's called Ilo Ilo. Uh, and uh, Ilo Ilo, does anyone know what that means? It's a province in the Philippines, so it doesn't seem to say very much. Uh, the Chinese title is much more revealing. The Chinese title, for those who read Chinese, is Pama Pu Zai Jia. Father, Mother, Not at Home. And the, the direct transliteration of that. And it's about um, this uh, young boy's relationship with uh, his uh, domestic work. I'm just going to show you the trailer, which is like one and a half minutes, but it gives you a sense of uh, what goes on in a typical Singaporean home. This is set in the times of the Asian financial crisis, and uh, towards the end of the film, uh, with the Asian financial crisis, you'll see that the parents lost their jobs, and when the parents lose their jobs, who else has to go? The domestic worker also has to go because, yeah, they no longer can afford that. It's based on Anthony Chen's own memories of the domestic worker, the Filipino domestic worker, who brought him up, in a sense, was with him for like eight years in his formative years. So I will stop speaking and show you what. Um, and, and so forth. Um, the, 
probably won't have time, but I just mentioned that uh, the interesting part to this film to me is what happened after the film became quite famous because it sparked off a woman hunt for Auntie Terry. So after Auntie Terry uh, went home uh, to the Philippines, I mean, uh, there was no more contact. So when this film came to uh, light, um, there was in the Philippines, everybody was trying to find out who Auntie Terry is. It's unfortunately not a very good story because uh, Anthony Chen did manage to find him in the end. Find her in the end. She was living in a very uh, a village in a very small um, hut. I think it was Haugi. We managed to speak to Anthony Chen before he became famous. So, uh, so this is story told us. And uh, what was so poignant to him was that um, Auntie Terry, um, the AS in Singapore, was a very lively young woman who, you know, I mean, taught him English, for example. I mean, uh, and uh, love sort of um, um, dancing and gramophones and so forth. Uh, when they found her, uh, she was living in poverty, could no longer speak English. I mean, uh, she's lost um, her remembrance of uh, that language. And uh, what was quite tragic was that she had a little pouch with photographs of her time in Singapore, and that was her main treasure. So uh, in that sense, it's a, it's a story is one where migration has not, in a sense, lifted her from poverty. But anyway, OK, so going back to the, the whole point of this is um, there's a whole debate about whether the domestic worker is part of the family or not. Um, and um, in, to describe this, uh, I draw from Imiko Ochai's phrase, she called the phrase liberal familialism uh, to describe this phenomenon where the cost of purchasing the care labor is borne by the family. So the family basically has to pay uh, money to, to employ the domestic worker, but where filial parties outsource to others whose services are owned from across international borders. So it's a form of global householding where, uh, in a sense, uh, buy the labor and outsource the filial piety. So and in, in the case of elder kids, so uh, as again, those of you who read Chinese would know that the word xia, basically meaning fear party, uh, is depicted in that particular picture as sort of uh, 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 the child sort of um, carrying your, your parent, basically being, being sort of uh, responsible for your parent is very much part of the, the idea of fear party. Here in Singapore, um, domestic workers are now being employed to look after the elderly, whilst both uh, husband and wife would be working. So usually, the typical scene in each home is that uh, the um, family would um, be empty of the parents, and it's the uh, elderly Singaporean employer and the domestic worker who accompany each other, usually watching uh, some TV drama. So my third question is, what kind of TV drama do you think they're watching? So let me remind you first, the uh, older woman probably only speaks dialect, Chinese dialect, or at most Mandarin. This is an Indonesian domestic worker who would speak Indonesian. So what kind of uh, TV drama crosses all boundaries? 
going to the toilet at night. So um, that's, that kind of work is largely very intimate work uh, done um, by the, the domestic worker, whilst um, family members, particularly next generation family members, the sons and daughters, daughters-in-law and, and grandchildren, will play a part um, providing um, emotional care that's qualitatively different, episodic care, care that in a sense has symbolic value. So many of the families will tell us that, uh, oh, we do celebrate birthdays and um, take the elderly out for a meal. Uh, we would also, uh, if the, the, the elderly have to go to the doctor uh, for an important sort of um, event, it has to be family member, not the maid, that takes the, 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 the elderly to the doctor. So these kinds of non-routine um, sort of tasks that can accumulate symbolic value that signifies familyhood and filial party are still, in a sense, uh, kept by the family members, whereas the, uh, the, the kind of work, that's the wear and tear of everyday care basically gets uh, moved to the domestic worker. I'll just share one uh, interview that we did to show you what kind of work the Indonesian domestic worker does caring for Akko. It's repetitive and it's, um, yeah, so here, so the interviewer asks, what do you do, ask the, the domestic, what do you do at the daycare where Akong, Akong means grand, grandpa, spends his day. So this grandpa basically goes to daycare and goes home every day, but still needs the help of a domestic worker who accompanies him. So the worker says, I take care of Akong. Uh, interviewer, you have to sit next to him all the time. Yeah, because every 10-15 minutes, my Akong would say, Oh, new, which is Cantonese for need to be. He wants to pass urine. Have or not, he must go toilet, but very difficult to pass urine. Every 10 minutes, must go toilet? Yeah. Oh, so the bladder not very good? Yeah. So Akong can go toilet himself? Cannot. Cannot? Um, this was one of my research assistants who I think was quite shocked. Uh, yeah, just stand there. I ask, have or not? Yeah, one day 15 times, 10 times, I have to do like that. She motions pulling down and pulling up Akong's pants. Uh, yeah, so sometimes he feels he must go toilet, but nothing? Yeah, not easy. So the not easy, I think, means not easy for Akong, but also not easy for herself. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what the not easy means, but this is the repetitive kind of work, very intimate work that the Indonesian domestic worker basically undertakes uh, almost on the 24-7. I mean, uh, this is, as I mentioned, one domestic worker who does sleep in the same room as Akong uh, and takes care of him. Uh, yeah including the nitty-gritty of going to the toilet. So now, let me then, uh, maybe I should just pause to see whether there's any burning questions about uh, domestic workers and the, the work of care that they do, because I'm going to now switch to uh, looking at uh, marriage migrants. Okay, if not, then I, I just continue. So, moving now to a second kind of strand of global householding, this time not so much to do with middle class households that can afford uh, foreign domestic workers, but uh, working class households that cannot afford uh, to pay for a foreign domestic worker. 
So it's somewhat analogous to the practice of middle class families recruiting these migrant domestic workers. Working class families without the financial means draw on this time not the lowly paid but the unpaid care labor by recruiting foreign brides. Right? I mean, uh, sounds logical, isn't it? So, I mean, uh, so, as I mentioned before, given the expanding educational and career opportunities for women in Singapore, um, Singaporean men from the lower socioeconomic structure now feel positionally kind of left behind by local women's participation in the workforce. So, and they also have care deficits in their household. So they try to uh, overcome these deficits through international marriage with women from the less developed countries in the region who are considered to be more traditional and more willing to take on procreational and caring roles in sustaining the household. So the story is this. Uh, in Singapore, there are two, marriage is still the norm uh, in many parts of Asia. It's dropping, but it's still the norm in most Asian societies. And the two groups that have the highest rate of uh, singlehood are the universally educated women. Uh, they don't really need to marry now. So, and the working class men who nobody wants to marry. So these two groups refuse to marry each other because of the hypergamy involved. So the working class men then look to the region for more traditional uh, brides who are more willing to stay home and uh, look after household, children, and the elderly. I did, um, we did, did this project and we interviewed quite a number of Singaporean men, and when asked the reason why they've um, engaged in this kind of uh, international marriage, uh, the usual answer is not love or romance or whatever, it's very practical. It's one, take care of me, two, have children, and three, look after my mother. So these are the kinds of care tasks that um, marriage migrants are expected to fulfill. So this is again one where uh, the migration industry does play a part. So this is a picture of a Vietnamese bride matchmaking agency in Singapore with the, the only man there is the matchmaker. The rest are uh, young Vietnamese women who have uh, flown up from uh, usually Ho Chi Minh uh, they usually come from rural areas, they, they will fly to, into Singapore and because we are part of ASEAN, it's uh, visa-free for about a month uh, and they will wait there for uh, Singaporean men to visit the agency and pick a bride. I was just interviewing, uh, we're continuing this project, so I was just interviewing someone who was commercially matched uh, about uh, last week before I came and she was telling me um, how, uh, in a sense, uh, um, she's, she got married at 20, the, her husband is 52, so more than twice her age, uh, and um, the husband basically, before he became the husband, uh, came to the agency and chose her, uh, but couldn't marry her then because he had actually put a deposit for another woman in a different agency. So I'm like, oh, okay, so she had to go back. So she was telling me that her month then ran out and uh, she had already invested for every trip to Singapore, she had paid about $2,500. So, uh, so which would be about £1,200, basically for the etiquette and everything else to come to Singapore for the so-called privilege of meeting Singaporean men. Uh, so she returned, and then uh, after a month she came back again, and this time 
the same man because the deposit he put for the other woman, the other woman didn't come back, took his deposit and ran off. So he then was able to uh, marry this woman. So, okay, that, that was just a very com complex story to, to in sense, indicate uh, the kinds of dynamics that happen in these families. And I won't, um, yeah, there's so many things I could say, but uh, let, let me then uh, go on to the more general trends. So, it, so in cities like Singapore, uh, it's the same phenomenon in um, cities in, in, in Korea, in Taiwan, in Hong Kong, and so forth. Um, international marriage is on the rise. In Singapore, across nationality marriages involves, involving one resident and uh, one non-resident is about 40%. So of all the marriages registered each year, 40% of marriages is between a Singapore resident and a non-resident. So it just shows you how high the rates are. In terms of inter-ethnic marriages, this is about 20%. Um, what? Because an international marriage between a Singaporean Chinese and a mainland Chinese is not considered an inter-ethnic marriage, so the inter-ethnic marriage rates tend to be lower. But whatever the figures, it just shows that uh, there are many more mixed unions and um, in terms of Singaporean men marrying Asian brides, that has gone up quite a bit. Uh, I like this particular phrase of this best match marriage consultants most it advertises a Vietnam wife is keen to do household chores and is willing to take care of parents wholeheartedly in both English and in Mandarin so uh, that's their advertising tagline right okay so um, you can I can tell you more about whether these marriages work or not because uh, it took be quite a number, but uh, let's, let's move on. I do want to give you one example. Um, this is uh, from an, an older um, project that we've finished, but we're continuing with this, this project, Marriage Migrants. So the example here is a, a commercially matched um, marriage between Michael, a Singaporean age 48, <coughs> and Huyen, a Vietnamese age 25. Uh, at the time of the, the, the interview. So they were married for four years. So she got married at 21, basically, uh, and he was 44, okay? And uh, they live with Michael's mother, who's in her 70s, Michael's older brother, who's single, uh, Michael's aunt, who's also single, and uh, Michael and Jane has one, year, uh, one adopted son of a year old. Okay, so, uh, and this is a, I won't go into a long story, but this is a marriage. This is a commercially matched uh, marriage. So, uh, I just want to use this to describe the kind of care work that uh, Huyen has to do. So, when we interview her, Huyen says that Michael is a generous man who is not stinted with money for her to send home to support her natal family. So, many of the uh, women that we interview, this is a very important component of your party, supporting having money to send home as remittances to her natal family is very important. The, the example I just gave you, um, um, the, the one that, that, that was the choice of the 52-year-old man, uh, her family comes from a rubber-tapping family, very, very poor, and um, she basically had no choice but to take this route in order to support the family. So Huyen says that she's, uh, despite the fact that Michael has been generous, 
she is extremely unhappy with the care labor expected of her for several reasons. So this, I thought, is useful to hear her words. Um, so first, she made clear that she was more than prepared to perform her role as a dutiful daughter-in-law, but she doesn't see why she needed to extend care work to include servicing other relatives. So these are notes that we took because most of these marriage migrants uh, would allow us to interview them but would not want their words recorded, so we basically have to take notes. So, um, so here expressed considerable unhappiness at having to do all the household chores for every member of the household. She has to wash all the clothes for the whole household and it did not help that her mother-in-law expected her to hand wash all the clothes as she said that the washing machine did not do a good job of cleaning dirty clothing. I don't know what is here but in Singapore they seem to be very particular about sorting out the undies from the colours and so forth and you can do that by hand. So Jin told her husband that she was a daughter-in-law to his parents only, not to his aunt or siblings, so she did not have to serve his other relatives. She said that everybody praised her husband for being a good son, the filial piety part, but just because he was good to his mother, it did not mean that he was good to his wife. In particular, she was particularly upset by the fact that her husband's aunt, another woman living in the same household, spared all housework, so why should I be doing all the work? So second, Hyun was very upset that her mother-in-law, who controls the purse strings in the household, would give her money after she did the housework, as, as if she was, in her words, no more than a maid. Um, she felt that nobody listened to her or valued her as one of the family members. She in fact proposed that the household members chipped in to employ a maid to take care of the household chores now that she had to look after the adopted baby. But Michael did not agree and kept evading the discussion because his mother objected to an outsider, a maid, living in a home who would touch here and there with hands which were not clean. This further confirmed in Huyen's mind that she's being treated like a maid who performed household chores to earn money in the form of allowance because her mother-in-law only gave her pocket money after she finishes the housework. To add insult to injury, Michael openly stated that he would rather lose his wife than offend his mother as he had only one mother while he could get another wife. So, um, Huyen was very happy because um, this, I think, example shows the very thin line between uh, a dutiful wife and a paid domestic worker uh, and Huyen's um, unhappiness at having to play second fiddle not just to the mother-in-law but also expected to render domestic service to other adult members of the household, including other women. Uh, and um, the fact that her mother-in-law gives her money uh, after she does the work, devalorizes her care work and uh, confirms her place as a maid. So, so in that sense, um, it's not been a happy situation and when she put pressure on Michael to move out of the house to set up their own home, uh, Michael's reply was that it's our custom that we have to look after our parents. So this is where filial party trumps sort of the marriage relationship. Yes. Sorry. Uh, oh, no, no, no. Okay, yeah, right. okay. <laughs> uh, so, and uh, when we interviewed them, um, they were in negotiations for. Uh, so the idea of moving out was not going to be uh, possible. So the next solution, uh, Huyen was in a sense negotiating with Michael, is that is this: uh, if Huyen can find paid work, 
and give part of a salary to a mother-in-law for household expenses and to care for the, the son, the baby. And if she forgoes allowance that she currently receives from her husband, then Michael is prepared to employ a paid domestic worker to undertake the household chores. So you see here the very complicated relationship between care and money, basically, and some is exchangeable, and in, in part, there's no exchange, uh, no way of exchanging one for the other. So, uh, and Hyun is willing to contemplate this because she was very keen to escape the drudgery of domestic work. Um, she also said in another part interview that this would give her her own money to send home to her natal family uh, instead of depending on Michael. And um, so this, this kind of negotiations is still going on. So, but this is just to give you a slice of um, the interviews that we're doing with uh, marriage migrants and in stressing the kinds of uh, complications but the very thin line between uh, domestic worker and a marriage migrant worker. Can I just ask, um, yes. on marriage, mm -hmm. what rights does she gain in Singapore? Okay. So, is she a citizen? So marriage does not confer citizenship or residency. So uh, the marriage migrant, uh, if she is not able to come into Singapore in her own right, but is coming in as a dependent of a man, the husband, then she comes in first on a, a, a visit pass, which doesn't allow her to work. So this visit pass has to be renewed sometimes every three months, sometimes every six months, sometimes every year, uh, which is why many of these women want to, in a sense, progress to the permanent residency. Okay, I, I won't go into the complications because there's an in-between stage called the long-term social visit pass plus. But let, let me skip the complications. But in order to, in a sense, get out of the visit pass and come on the pathway to permanent residency, uh, this again comes from the interview that I've just done last week, three things needs to be fulfilled, three conditions. One, she needs to work. If you're contributing to Singapore's economy, then you are a worthy, worthy resident. Two, a very important thing, you have to produce a kid. So uh, all the women that we interview, children, giving birth a child basically enhances your value uh, as, uh, as a woman and a resident and citizen of Singapore. And three is that uh, you must learn to speak English. So these three conditions basically, and you're amazed how quickly the Vietnamese women learn uh, to do this. I mean, the woman that was interviewing basically is now a small business entrepreneur with a, a, a chain of uh, hawker centers. So she's moved from her, her uh, very desperate state when she, she said that when she married the 52-year-old and came to the house, for the first few months, she did nothing but cry because it was so miserable. But uh, look at where she is uh, several years later. She's a successful businesswoman. But anyway, that's, that's a different story. But so, in a sense, they have uh, no, no residency rights and therefore have to depend heavily on the man's uh, sponsorship, which leads to all kinds of issues to do with divorce, abuse, and so forth. Just follow up very briefly, but how long typically, uh, what would be the minimum time for? Okay, so, so this is where I have to introduce a long-term social visit pass 
plus, okay, because there was a recent invention of the last five years, usually three years after marriage, if you produce a child uh, and, you, and uh, show signs that you wish to work, although you didn't, you're not allowed to work under the visit pass, if you are persistent enough, you can get an employer to write in for special permission to work. So, but particularly producing the child, after three years of marriage, it is possible to get the social visit pass plus, which allows you to work and comes with some medical benefits. On the social visit pass, that comes with nothing. That comes, basically, there's no medical benefits, no residency rights, no nothing. Yeah. Uh, I could talk a little bit more about that, but let me uh, finish off here. So, um, because just to sum up this part about domestic workers and, 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 and uh, foreign wives, basically, um, I think the, the point I want to make here is that the near substitutability of the labor performed by the foreign wife vis-a-vis -vis the foreign maid, as many of the wives say, we are nothing more than we, the way they phrase it is that we do everything that a, do, a, a domestic worker does plus extra duties in the bedroom, so that's, and we are not paid, at least the, the main is paid. So, but if, if, if we combine these two forms of uh, care labor um, and look at the, the conditions, it basically has the effect of depressing the value of care labor because uh, both forms of care labor are cheap solutions to the deepening reproductive crisis uh, of, uh, in the spheres of childcare, elder care, and domestic work. So, um, from the point of view of the state, importing foreign wives or foreign maids into the household coheres with their preferred uh, solution to the reproductive crisis, particularly the elder care crisis, because these solutions uh, ensure that the cost of care is absorbed and privatized within the familial realm and not passed on to the state. So in that sense, it's, a, it's liberal familialism is, is a privatized form of care that is confined and absorbed within the familial realm and does not lead to the sort of elderly being, uh, the burden of caring for the elderly being passed on to the state. So in that sense, it is uh, a privatized solution to the um, care crisis. So, uh, and as uh, this last quote says, this perpetuates the conditions under which feminized social reproductive work conducted in the private sphere uh, is overlooked even as it en enables the construction of the public sphere as un unencumbered by caring responsibilities. So, the hidden work of feminized care. I'm now going to switch tech because uh, and move on uh, to the other end of the um, care chain. Uh, usually, very much ignored because there's a lot more work on on the northern end, the global cities, and so forth. Uh, but these care migrations have important repercussions for the other end of the care chain, the southernmost end of the care chain. So, and um, this comes from a different project. But we are interested in what happens at the, at further down the global care chain, where the increasing care migrations uh, that has 
means that millions of children are left behind, and I use that term deliberately because the migration regime does not allow them to be, to be brought with their parents to the, um, to the destination country, so they are, I would say, literally and correctly, um, in terms of terminology, left behind. They are growing up uh, for part or, in, in some cases, all of their young lives in the absence of migrant, a migrant father, a migrant mother, or sometimes both, and usually under the care of the other parent or sometimes surrogate caregivers. So uh, this is a very old uh, book by now, but it basically shows, the picture shows how, in a sense, migration splits uh, the mother from children uh, who are left behind in many parts of Southeast Asia. So as uh, migration studies have pointed out, the woman carer model is still very durable, uh, even in these cases. And when the mothers are absent, becoming migrant breadwinners somewhere else, uh, their role is usually taken up by female relatives such as grandmothers and aunts. This is the general principle that we went into the field uh, uh, thinking about, but um, doing more work in the field, and I'll describe that in a while, has caused us to change our minds a little bit. So, uh, uh, and what we've found is that um, the literature tends to demonize the, the left-behind men as good for nothing and they are usually drinking or womanizing and therefore not doing picking up the, the care duties. What we found was uh, something quite different. Uh, and this is a paper on Vietnam where we began to question this commonly held view of the delinquent left-behind husband who is resistant to adjust his family duties in a woman's absence. Instead, what we found was that Southeast Asian men do struggle to live up to sort of um, highly moralistic and masculine ideals of being good fathers and uh, independent breadwinners when their wives are working abroad. So, uh, and they do take on some of the care work they do care differently, so this whole question as to whether the men care like uh, women do, uh, they, what we found is that they care kind of differently, um, largely because um, most of the men that we uh, interview in the project basically will continue to hold on to some kind of paid work even whilst being the primary carers for their children. So even if the monetary returns are very low, and even though the breadwinning wife is, in a sense, bringing in the main support for the family, they will continue to um, drive a tricycle around for a few hours, for example, as a way of uh, sort of um, insisting on some kind of semblance of economic autonomy. So there is a repackaging of fathering identities uh, at the southernmost end of the care chain is, I think, the point that we were trying to make. So um, in the literature, um, even as women migrants are valorized for their roles as remittance heroes, bringing in sort of uh, remittances into countries uh, which are now more dependent on remittances than on, on, on developmental aid, uh, they are also blamed for the social ills in source countries and source communities with high rates of female out-migration. So uh, some of the 
some anxieties has to do with uh, the children's school performance, social and psychological health, uh, the abandonment of children and elderly because of the dwindling of the carer generation, and the breakup of families, divorce, and so forth. So these are very typical anxieties. What we found in the project is that uh, whilst, of course, uh, these symptoms are there, the effects are not predetermined. Uh, you have to look at a much more complex sort of uh, situation, uh, bearing in mind the role of remittances, uh, the role of um, support networks for the left behind, as well as the transnational circuits of affection, care and support from long distance memory. So, um, so this is, this in a sense was the motivation for what we call the CHAMSI project. CHAMSI standing for children and migrant parents in Southeast Asia, where we are interested in how the family is being restitched uh, in times of migration, of high feminized migration. It's a mixed method study. Uh, it's also longitudinal. We visited the field, uh, the field meaning Philippines and Indonesia, some religious migrants and villages in these two countries uh, about eight years ago, and we've just returned to the field last year. And uh, yeah, so uh, I'm just going to focus on one uh, issue from this particular project, which is to look at uh, the potential rupture to care rhythms that are triggered by migrant migration of mothers turned breadwinners, and uh, looking at the uh, way in which care rhythms are conserved, reconstituted, or disrupted in the everyday practices of care. Okay, so, um, okay, I think I will skip quickly to, uh, given the time, I won't read you the, the, the stories, but uh, essentially we was, we, there were three outcomes that we wanted to look at, that when mothers become migrant breadwinners, uh, the care rhythm could be ruptured, or concert, and uh, this example shows one of conservation where, um, in a sense, the mother and child was able to maintain their relationships long distance, and um, the the relationship, the care relationship, was in a sense conserved, and in fact became more intensive as opposed to being ruptured. So maybe uh, just to to give you a short. Um, Summary of this case of, of Kathy, who's a computer diploma holder. Uh, her mom has been um, a migrant in uh, Dubai for many years, and she's being looked after by grandmother. So uh, to cut a long story short, so at, at the end of the interview, she basically says that um, she's now very close, super close to her mother. Uh, her relationship with her grandmother has taken a back seat. Uh, because grandma didn't agree with some of her choices. Um, she, grandma didn't approve of her boyfriend, changing religion, coming home late and so forth. And her strongest desire now is to be, to migrate to Dubai, to be reunited with her family. Her, family. Uh, her mother and father separated, uh, and she is now in a sense keen to reunite with her mother and her mother's boyfriend in Dubai. Whether that dream will come to pass or not is, um, not known, but this is a case where the care relationship between mother and child uh, through all the years of separation did not break what was in fact um, um, recuperated uh, as a, a very intense relationship. Um, and the second 
possibility is the reconstitution of uh, the care relationship. Uh, and this one perhaps uh, I can go through a little bit. Uh, so this is a case of uh, Harold who returned from Taiwan to look after his two children when his wife decided to migrate to work in Italy. So the child's grandmother, Thelma, was there to lend a hand, but uh, Harold wanted to, in a sense, not leave the caregiving to her. And uh, Thelma had very high praise. Thelma is uh, um, the child's, the children's maternal grandma, had very high praise for her son-in-law, calling him the best father carer, grading him 100% as father and husband. And in his words, after he arrives home from work, he takes care of the children, washes their clothes, tends to the children, uh, checks their school materials, their books, everything must be in order, even checks for candy wrappers inside the bags, make sure that the bag is clean, tidy, ballpoint, pens, working, uh, and so forth. So even though he does part-time work, uh, he uh, provides uh, nitty-gritty care. And uh, Harold himself is very well aware of the challenges that in going against the grain of the prevailing gender order. She sa he says that for the children's clothes worn on special occasions, I wash them myself. When neighbors laugh at me when they walk past, I splash water on them. Besides, people outside are now accustomed to seeing me do that. If they see me washing the clothes, they will ask me, don't you have work today? I think a father should work and disciplined kids, but it's okay to do the housework, continue laughing, I prepare breakfast, everything, even underwear for the children. He also had to cope with the, the doctor who started menstruating, so he says, yes, I buy napkins for her, I just buy sanitary pads at the store nearby, I feel embarrassed. When I buy that downtown, but at the neighborhood store, I say, one packet, and they know what I mean. I did not panic when Hazel told me about menstruation, it's normal for a girl. So this is a father that has basically embraced uh, care kind of wholeheartedly. And um, in that sense then, um, what we see here is a reconstitution of the gender care rhythms, uh, where a fathers are herald sort of express pride. Uh, they do see every little thing they do in heroic terms, I must say. I mean, uh, men, when they do some work, they think that it's most women see as quite normal, but they see, they express considerable pride in being able to, to do that. Uh, and in that sense, are very, uh, uh, they celebrate their strengths in overcoming the odds and ensuring that children are growing up well under their watch. Uh, and uh, so in this case then, um, in the face of potential rupture, when mothers turn breadwinners, uh, the gender roles undergirding the normative care regime is reconstituted in a way uh, by fathers who repackage good fatherhood. Uh, and this tends to be the case when doing family trumps doing gender. And finally, I mean, uh, this is an example, I won't go into details uh, of rupture, when um, in, in this case the, the main point of the rupture has to do with the lack of uh, familial support. Uh, there was um, a, a lot of, uh, as you say, um, maybe I'll just turn to the summary, that um, basically for Felix, I mean, um, the wife in the end decided to separate from him and the marriage broke down uh, because um, the wife's family basically accused him of stealing their daughter and uh, taking away all the remittances that was sent back by the daughter. So 
uh, he then uh, was not able to reconcile with his family, with, with his wife, and, um, and uh, the couple has ceased all communication. But what was interesting, perhaps, is this side of the story, which is the child's story. So Winnie, who was 18, basically, uh, she also echoes her father's view that it's the gossip and the rumor mongering that interfered with the, her parents' marriage, and um, that uh, it broke down because of these kinds of rumors. Uh, her relationship with her mother is also one of contradictions, because uh, she blames her mother for giving up on the marriage, and thinks it's very humiliating to have a broken pole. Uh, while she depends on the mother to send her, her money for tuition fees and school expenses, because father's income is only enough for the household subsistence, and she does expect material gifts from her mother, she also resents her mother for making her feel that their relationship is always just about the money. She says, it feels like she's paying me to be her daughter. And when her mother calls, she doesn't reciprocate, she ignores the mother. When the mother is home, she doesn't stay, chooses to stay with the mother and chooses to remain with her father. So we saw this as a case of rupture, not just in the marital relationship, but also the relationship between um, mother and daughter. Okay, so um, let me then come to a conclusion. Uh, and this is basically to try to conclude from the three or four projects that I've shared. Uh, that in all the cases, uh, gender inequality is both a precondition as well as a growing effect of the transnational provision of everyday and generational care at not just one end of the care chain, but at both ends of the care chain. And uh, secondly, I mean, uh, despite the potential inherent sort of opportunity in transforming patriarchal gender order in families because of feminized migration, so one would expect that when women become breadwinners, they might have, they may be uh, empowered. But what we saw is that there are real limits to the to the empowerment, largely because of the disempowering effects of uh, the temporary migration regime, as well as the embeddedness of family level care temporalities that structure social life in Southeast Asia. And that's it. Thank you.